I think needs to happen as a change. And what I see happening in a lot of the companies where we do research is that in an innovation economy, we're going to end up needing to treat people as individuals to a degree that wasn't true in an industrial economy. In an industrial economy, we could not tolerate too much in the way of differences because that translated into efficiency and we were competing based on efficiency in economies of scale. Well, efficiency in economies of scale are not irrelevant, but they're no longer the way we win the competition, right? The way we win now is coming up with something better or highly differentiated from what our competitors are offering. And that requires that we bring new factors into the mix. And this is overall, I think, an argument for diversity of all kinds that we need. You know, diversity brings in new perspectives. It helps us come up with new initiatives and new ideas and new products and services that we haven't come up with before. And crucially, it also helps us recognize that those things are valuable. One of the problems that companies have had historically is they come up with good stuff, but they don't really realize it's valuable and somebody else ends up making a good business out of it. But I think diversity, different perspectives, all of this stuff, if we approach people as individuals, if we say to people, bring your whole self to work. And uh, Anka Wittenberg, who used to be the chief diversity and inclusion officer at SAP before she's moved on to other things, she used to say, it's the parts of ourselves that we do not share that are most likely to be the source of innovations, right? If we share everything, we only come up with things that we all share, but if we bring our whole selves to work, including the things we don't share, interesting things can happen, innovative things. Welcome back everyone. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. I can't spell. I'm on degree number five. I've spent 15 years at university, but I still cannot spell basic words like apple. I struggle to pronounce words and I often invert letters like B and D. I don't know my right from my left, which makes it really challenging when driving. I can never really play any sort of rhyming games and I get major anxiety when I have to write on boards in front of people or on birthday cards because I've got really poor handwriting and often I have to rewrite words that are spelt incorrectly. It takes me a really long time to read. I've actually come to learn the shape of words rather than how they're spelt, and that's how I read. I have terrible hand-eye coordination, uh, so I tend to participate in sports where I'm moving in a straight line, (laughs) like running or swimming. I struggle to remember dates, and all of these things are challenges for me because I'm dyslexic. I was diagnosed really late in life, which made it a lot harder to spot because I found different ways to work around a lot of the difficulties being dyslexic creates. For example, I've had to teach myself how to learn by using things like mind maps and audio repetition. And for a long time, I resented the fact that I was dyslexic. And it's only recently that I've really come to appreciate that my difference is not a barrier to be overcome, but it's my superpower. I think differently, I learn differently, I remember things differently, I approach the entire world differently 
because I am different. And that is something to be valued. Despite the saying, the thing that makes great minds so great is that they don't all think alike. Increasingly, companies need people who can solve complex problems, innovate and create in new ways precisely because they don't view the world in the same way as many others do. The term neurodivergent describes a person who thinks differently to the dominant social norm or neurotypical person because of individual differences related to a cognitive condition, such as autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia or ADHD. That's why companies like SAP, Microsoft and Google have invested in hiring people who are autistic or otherwise neurodivergent. But not all workplaces value or nurture different ways of thinking. And within the 20% of the global population which is neurodivergent, it's estimated the unemployment rate is over 80%. If there's one thing that the pandemic has taught us, it's that work accommodations can be made with great success. Businesses will need neurodiversity to outcompete their competitors in the future. And making targeted accommodations to create more inclusive work environments for people who are neurodivergent can help unlock one of the world's largest untapped talent pools. In an article for Harvard Business Review, Rob Austin, Professor of Information Systems at Ivy Business School in Canada, who studies neurodiversity in the workplace, shares that although many companies are just beginning to realise the benefits of neurodiversity, SAP's programme, which is four years old, is already paying off in terms of increased productivity gains, quality improvement, boosts in innovative capabilities and broad increases in employee engagement. On today's episode, Rob will join us to unpack what neurodiversity is and to tell us why organisations need neurodivergent people now more than ever. Now, the neurodiversity movement dates back to the late 90s, uh, and, it, and it has to do with this idea that you know, people with autism, people with dyslexia don't want to be regarded as people who need to be fixed. They want mm. to be regarded as people who are different and who have differences that may include advantages. And that's the basis of neurodiversity employment as well. I, I should note that there are people who oppose this view and there's a lively debate and it's an understandable debate in the neurodiversity context because there are some people who are so profoundly affected by some of the underlying conditions that they have a hard time with the idea of people not wanting them to be cured. They see it as people not wanting them to be helped. And so for some people, I think, who are more, uh, you know, they see it as dismissing a category of people who need a lot of help. So it does have this kind of unfortunate uh, tendency to divide the community into people who need more support and less support. Social model of disability, you know, I, I like to think of it as just saying that you know, the problem is not with the person, the problem is with the context. And way back in the beginning, in the early 2000s, the company Specialist Sterna that really started all of this, a Danish company, name of it, the name means the specialists, their founder, Torkel Sona, came up with this metaphor of the dandelion. And he was employing people on the autism spectrum. And his argument was, you know, like the dandelion, which we all regard as a weed, the problem isn't inherently in the plant or in the person. It's in the fact that that yellow weed gets into a context that we're trying to make completely green, our lawns. 
And so people consider the dandelion to be a weed, not because of its essential characteristics, but because the context is not suitable for it. And so a lot of what neurodiversity employment boils down to, I think, is adjusting contexts so that people can be effective, so that we can activate talent. And, and by the way, this idea carries over into kind of all of us, right? I mean, if you shift, as we have heard many managers say they've done, if you shift your mindset as a manager into thinking, my job is to create a context to activate my people's talent to a maximum degree, that works with everyone. Could arguably improve the performance of companies by a considerable margin if it was widely applied. Why is it that workplaces are designed with one type of individual in mind? How is it that a lot of our management practices today still apply a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to how we hire, advance, and manage people? Here Rob shares why making your workplace work for everyone starts with treating every person as an individual. I do think we have not a great way of framing the way we manage talent in business and in organizations. And this is probably going to run against the grain for a lot of people, but I'm not really fond of the expression human resources. Human resources, and Torkel and I have written about this in MIT Sloan Management Group, Torkel, Sona, and I, but it, it sort of implies that talent or skill is some sort of a fungible resource for a company, just like money or you know some sort of material flows or whatever. And the way we put it in this article is it, it seems to imply that we have this valuable human stuff that just happens to be kept in receptacles called people. We point out that's a little bit like referring to the contents of an art museum as paint resources. And uh, that kind of gets at the gist of what I think needs to happen as a change. And what I see happening in a lot of the companies where we do research is that in an innovation economy, we're going to end up needing to treat people as individuals to a degree that wasn't true in an industrial economy. In an industrial economy, we could not tolerate too much in the way of differences because that translated into efficiency and we were competing based on efficiency in economies of scale. Well, efficiency in economies of scale are, are not irrelevant but they're no longer the way we win the competition, right? The way we win now is coming up with something better or highly differentiated from what our competitors are offering. And that requires that we bring new factors into the mix. And this is overall, I think, an argument for diversity of all kinds that we need, you know, diversity brings in new perspectives. It helps us come up with, you know, new initiatives and new ideas and new products and services that we haven't come up with before. And crucially, it also helps us recognize that those things are valuable. One of the problems that companies have had historically is they come up with good stuff, but they don't really realize it's valuable and somebody else ends up making a good business out of it. But I think diversity, different perspectives, if we approach people as individuals, if we say to people, bring your whole self to work. And uh, Anka Wittenberg, who used to be the chief diversity and inclusion officer at SAP before she's moved on to other things, she used to say, it's the parts of ourselves that we do not share that are most likely to be the source of innovations, right? If, if we share everything, we only come up with things that we all share. But if we bring our whole selves to work, including the things we don't share, then interesting things can happen, innovative things. 
According to a report by the CIPD, there's a flip side to the challenges that neurodivergent individuals face, which are the unique strengths that their different abilities create. This can be anything from problem solving to creative insights and visual spatial thinking. In other words, lots of the precise capabilities that many employers value. But to tap into these talents, we need to recognise that our workplaces are largely designed by and for people who are neurotypical. And in doing so, we've built into these workplaces challenges for many neurodivergent people. The social model of disability, which we've talked about on previous episodes, calls on us to recognise that it's these external challenges, rather than an individual's differences, that are the real barriers to inclusion. One place where this lack of inclusivity is all too common is when it comes to hiring practices, as Rob explains. Some of the progress that's been made, the long-held barrier to hiring people who were different was what I like to call the hiring checklist, right? And uh, the, the classic way of deciding who to hire was kind of top down, that you decide what your company needs to be able to do, you know, what its strategies are that it wants to execute. And then from that, you derive what capabilities are required. And from that, you derive what skills the people you need to hire have. And what companies who pursued that approach tended to end up with checklists. And they tended to be fairly long checklists. And uh, there was also, a, I think, a process of you know, just adding things to it. So a lot of the checklists had things like, uh, does this person look you in the eye? Does this person mm -hmm. seem like a team player? And many of those things, I think, were really serious barriers to people who would be considered neurodivergent, who had you know, autism. We have to be careful about generalizing all people with autism are different uh, from each other, uh, just like we all are. But nevertheless, one of the common uh, traits that's identified with autism is the inability to look people you're talking with in the eye. It's literally unpleasant for a certain people with autism. John Elder Robeson has a book about his experience as uh, an autistic person. And the title of the book is Look Me in the Eye, right? And it's <laughs> the thing he could never do. And so there were you know, these checklist things. Microsoft talks about screening in versus screening out, you know, approaching the hiring process with an attitude that says, what does this person have to offer? Uh, rather than with an attitude that says, everybody wants to work here. What can we do to try to keep people out? Uh, which might, you know, perhaps a little bit of a, an exaggeration of the approach that companies use. But another quote that I heard from an executive at EY was, she said, we have stopped asking about fit and started asking whether people are additive to our culture. And that implies, I think, a move away from this checklist idea and, you know, a move towards if we see talent, but it's not well-rounded talent, we're okay with that too. And in fact, we might need that as much as we need well-rounded talent. So there are, I think there are these things that are happening. Another thing I would point out is that uh, we see this happening a lot in high-tech industries who are competing in markets that are characterized by a lot of rapid change. And one question I like to pose, and I've got a little bit of research going on this where we're, we're simulating hiring situations in a computer. But one interesting question to ask is if you're working in a world where your competitive environment is changing very rapidly, is hiring for what you need today the best strategy, right? You may be better served by a strategy that says, let's hire some very valuable skill set 
that we don't have very much of right now, even if we don't have an immediate need for it right at this moment. And, you know, basically we're gambling that with the world changing as fast as it is, that's going to be useful to us. Technological advancements are making it easier for businesses to make accommodations and are helping us make leaps and bounds towards removing the barriers which prevent many people participating fully in the world of work. For example, in April this year, Microsoft announced a variety of new accessible by design features in Microsoft 365, including AI in Microsoft Word, which detects and converts to heading styles crucial for blind and low vision readers, expanding immersive reader to help with the comprehension of PowerPoint slides and notes, and a new Excel navigation pane designed for screen readers to help people easily discover and navigate objects in a spreadsheet. Here, Rob shares more on how technology can break down barriers and help us build workplaces which work for everyone. One of the things that is helping with the neurodiversity employment movement is that we do live in a time when technological accommodations are making many things possible that were not possible before, right? And, and some of the examples are, we did an event with the UN around uh, World Autism Awareness Day. And there were panelists from lots of different places in the world talking about employment of people who are neurodivergent. And uh, one of the panelists was nonverbal, but he was able to talk to us through a technology mediated. I don't know exactly what the setup was, but he was able to talk to us through a, a technological interface. And these are things that are becoming more possible. I think it's helped along by the likes of companies like Microsoft who are building technologies to, to serve in this way. Their whole accessibility movement, I think, has been very influential. In terms of how companies should set up their accommodation processes, I like the way Microsoft does it. Microsoft has an accommodation process for everyone. The first principle of accommodations that you have to realize is that the research shows that accommodating people's requests is not very expensive, right? That the, the, you know people have this idea that we can't afford to accommodate everything. It's just too expensive. But the truth is, it's not. Right. You know, a few changes in the environment, uh, some uh, sound deadening headphones, in some cases, putting people in less noisy parts of the room, being careful about, you know, where um, the smells coming out of the cafeteria, things like that are relatively easy to do. And what Microsoft says is anybody can ask for an accommodation. And, you know, if it's reasonable, if it's not crazy or anything, that's generally something that is granted. And you know, this goes along with the philosophy of, you know, providing people the context they need to be maximally effective, to activate their talents and skills and to a maximum degree. One of the difficulties we face advancing neurodiverse talent are our assumptions and shared beliefs about what good looks like at work. Research over the last 30 years has shown that the ideal worker in organizations is typically a white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male. And consequently, human resource policies and management practices are designed with this ideal in mind. But as Rob says, what served us back in the 1950s industrial era, where everyone needed to look, think and act in the same way, 
no longer serves us today in an innovation economy where difference is the competitive advantage. Creating an enabling environment for people who don't fit outdated perceptions of what good looks like requires that we address the fact that organizations are hardwired to systematically screen out, manage out, and devalue neurodiverse talent. Here, Rob shares more on what's holding companies back when it comes to advancing neurodiversity. I think there are a number of things that stop companies from going this direction. I think some are afraid that it looks expensive. I think some are afraid that there might be risks involved, legal risks, because it does involve employment. And, you know, that can be a source of indecisions about employment and who should be employed. And, you know, it, it overtly tackles issues of bias, which can be kind of hot buttons for organizations that they want to kind of isolate and stay away from. I am aware that there are organizations out there that want, you know, they don't want any, they want to get anywhere, anywhere close to something that has these characteristics. I think one of the big drivers of it in the tech industry has been, you just don't have enough talent and you've got unfilled jobs and you're trying to figure out where you can get talent in areas that are quite crucial. One company where we've done research considers their neurodiversity program to be strategic because it's a consulting firm. Their clients need specialized technical expertise from them. But when they historically have tried to hire people who have those very extreme talents, those people tended to get hired away by Google or Microsoft. You know, those people prefer to work for tech companies. And so this uh, neurodiversity hiring approach has been a way they can acquire technical capabilities that are really high caliber, but are also available to them. Uh, They've been able to have a, a good deal of success in hiring. I think there has been a learning curve as well that have kept companies from doing this. There's starting to be a community of companies helping each other. Uh, This is one of the places where if you want to start a program like this, you can call up SAP or call up Microsoft and often you get a lot of help. Organizations like like ours, you know, research always lags behind practice when we're studying practical things, but we are starting to compile, you know, a significant library of examples, case studies and writings about how to do this that can help more and more companies. And I think we're seeing it proliferate. I mean, there's still a huge opportunity ahead because uh, most of these successes so far have dealt with high skill level job categories and people who don't need very much support, relatively speaking. There are a few companies, and we're starting to research them very earnestly, who are trying to do what we call dipping deeper into these spectrums. Uh, They're trying to not only hire software developers and data scientists, but also people to put together cardboard boxes or to count inventory. And what they're finding is that people who are neurodiverse can do a very good job of that too. It's just a matter of activating the talent, which is different when we dip deeper into these spectrums. Finally, Rob shares one action that every company can take to build a more neurodiverse workforce. I think if a company were looking to get going on something like this, it makes sense to reach out to others who have traveled the path before. On the web, there's a website. I think it's called the Neurodiversity Roundtable. And if you search on the Neurodiversity Roundtable, it will pop up. The first six companies that formed the roundtable were SAP, Microsoft, Ford, EY, 
DXC Technologies, JP Morgan Chase, those six. But the roundtable is now much bigger, many more companies. And uh, part of the reason that they were formed is to create a resource for companies that were looking to start things like this. And in fact, they have a handbook uh, that is downloadable for free that gives a lot of practical steps on how to get a program going like this. So I think that would be my uh, my foremost recommendation. We also have a variety of resources, you know, case studies and things like that. But those are typically things people encounter in management development experiences in executive education settings. I hope you all enjoyed today's podcast episode. If you're looking to advance neurodiversity in your workplace, here are some thoughts on how you can get started. A good jumping off point is to review your recruitment practices with a critical eye. Do you need to reframe your assumptions about what good looks like? As Rob shared, eye contact, strong handshake and superficial norms like this may be hard for some people to engage in. What would happen if we ditched the neurotypical checklist and tried instead to treat each person as a person by reviewing their skills, capabilities and the contribution that they and only they can make without assumption or judgment? It's also important, secondly, to think about what adjustments we can make to remove barriers through all stages of the employment life cycle. On this episode, we learned a lot about the importance of accommodations and how technology can help. There's no one size fits all here. Again, each person needs to be treated as the individual they are. Some people with autism may be sensitive to things like temperature, sound and lighting. So noise cancelling headphones, privacy rooms or flexible work schedules are all things that may help. Other people may face different challenges. Just as no two neurotypical people are the same, nor can all neurodivergent people be boxed together. Building a neurodiverse environment needs us all to recognise and value the unique contributions colleagues and team members make. As individuals, whether or not we're neurodivergent ourselves, we can all take the time to learn more about different types of neurodivergence so that we're all better able to understand and appreciate our colleagues and their unique experiences. To challenge our assumptions about what good looks like, we need to value difference and the different contributions that people make. For organisations, this is of course true for all employees, but especially important for neurodivergent colleagues. When companies openly recognise, reward and promote people for the differences they bring to the table, not in spite of them, they're recalibrating the standard of what good looks like and opening the door to innovation. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Just a quick reminder before you go that if you'd like to be a guest on the show, then please reach out at thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. If you want to support our work, then please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get yours. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all again next week. <laughs>